Let the, word go the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s is a pioneering program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of shared values. Sixty years later, we examine our divisions, our connections, our shared pains and successes in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Last week, we spoke with two scientists who have explored how changes in the way our food is produced have harmed our health. This week, we look at how those changes are damaging the health of our planet and explore some proven solutions that promise to improve our physical and emotional health and save money. So we are indeed going to continue our conversation from last week, and our guests again are David Montgomery and Anne Bicklay. Uh, and as we mentioned before, Dave, your professional background, geomorphology, sort of as you said, current affairs version of geology, yep. and you teach at the University of Washington. And Anne, you're both a biologist and an environmental journalist and science journalist. So thank you so much again for joining us. And of course, they're the authors of What Your Food Ate, which was after I read this, it was like, would you come on <laughs> Challenge 2.0? Because this relates, we've been doing a series of programs on uh, food deserts oh. and cultural access to foods. Uh, and so this is very much into all of that. And as we'll talk about a little bit further and as we did last week on soil quality and the way plants are grown, uh, I know that you are avid gardeners. So how have you put this into practice in your home garden and what results have you seen? Yeah, um, I'm kind of the chief gardener and I have a very good assistant who can yeah. help um, haul things and he's quite a good waterer, I will tell you that. He's an excellent waterer of plants. And I, the way I kind of think about it, Jeff, is I really wanna be doing things in the garden and with plants where I'm letting, I'm trying to tap into uh, kind of what these plants already know how to do in their environment. So the degree to which I can understand kind of the innate biology of a plant, I wanna do things to support that. And uh, the alternative approach would be, this plant really can't take care of itself. I think me, the gardener, or me, the farmer, mm -hmm. I'm gonna add all of these things because this poor plant doesn't really know what to do. Yeah. What I did um, with gardening is I knew that organic matter was um, critically important to soil, soil health, mm -hmm. and, and how that got turned into things by microbes in the soil mm -hmm. to help plants. So pretty much my whole approach to gardening has been to always make sure I've got an ample amount of organic matter. And when I say ample, people are gonna wanna know, well, how much is that? Is it a wheelbarrow, two or 10? So this is things like um, composted uh, food scraps, thoroughly composted. Mm -hmm. I, I use some of that. I also use, um, I'm a big proponent of getting wood chips from arborists, because here in the Northwest, okay. we, you know, trees, you're yeah. taking trees out or they fall or storms. Wood chips are a really, really nice substrate. So I use this as a mulch, the sort of the base of a mulch mix. And I mix in other things. Um, 
leaves that I will have stripped off of something I've just pruned. Mm -hmm. uh, neighbor gives me some flowers. I enjoy them for a few days. It's like, okay, now it's ready for the mulch. And I don't compost this stuff. I layer it on the beds and then I let it, I think of that as sort of, it's a drip irrigation of organic matter in uh. a sense, you see. So that then when our rainy season comes, it hits that mulch, microbes begin to break it down mm -hmm. and they pull it down at a rate at which the plant can take it up. So unlike a nitrogen fertilizer, which is a big gush of nutrients, often way more than a plant mm -hmm. can utilize at a given time, I like to kind of work with the microbes, work with the plant, say, okay, you two are having a conversation here. I'm gonna let you determine the drip rate. And I've ensured sort of a wide diversity of organic matter in my mulches. Mm -hmm. So I'm letting them pick and choose which nutrients to pull out of there. So I, the more I have gardened um, and just experimented with things, I really wanna work with the plant body mm -hmm. because even though plants can't talk, they're not sitting ducks out there in the environment. They know exactly how to defend themselves. And so you think about it as we just wanna give them the full repertoire of things to choose from mm -hmm. so they can do their plant thing. And what all that organic matter did, as we noticed, it started to turn the soil darker. Yeah. When we started the garden, we had uh, soil that was a, a khaki color. Yeah. Yeah. And after, over the course of a few years of all this, comp this mulching, we started to see that it was starting to get darker and darker. And it, we and essentially took the soil from having about 1% organic matter up to about 10% in places. Wow. And it was a, a side yard lot, so a few thousand square feet. You, you run the numbers on that and it's tons of carbon that have been taken from photosynthesis from the plants, dripped out into the root zone, incorporated by mi microbes into organic matter, and effectively stored in the yard. And so we, we first started to notice the sort of the positive changes that mm -hmm. the, the way you treat the soil, um, how that can affect the soil uh, through watching that happen in our garden. Um, and that led to the questions of, well, what are the microbes doing? Yeah. You know, what have we been missing yeah. out on? What were we not taught in college? <laughs> um, and trying to put that whole story together. And then we tried, tried to translate those lessons into, well, how could you do it on a farm? Right. Because right. it's one thing to do it on a small lot in Seattle where you've got you know, coffee shops down the street where you can get all kinds of coffee grounds and you've got wood chips to get carbon-rich wood chips, nitrogen-rich coffee grounds. You put mm -hmm. those together, it's the foundation for making organic matter because those are the two key ingredients you need other than oxygen and hydrogen. You need carbon and nitrogen to build organic matter. Right. And everything right. else is kind of round off error on the mass. So if you're going to really build a lot of organic matter in the soil, those are the things you need, and so where do you get them? And so we started to learn those lessons watching Ann's gardening in the yard, but the implications of it were then like, oh, could we do this at a yeah. larger scale? Yeah. yeah. How, how could farmers emulate yeah, this? Yeah, because it's like one thing, it's like, I, and these days with how much hotter our summers are getting, mm -hmm. it is, I, I just walk around in my neighborhood and I can see stressed plants, and I look down at the soil and I'm like, all right, so this is the 99th example of seeing a yeah. poorly mulched bed, whether that's trees or perennials or even vegetables, and these pl the, the, the plants are stressed. So we thought, wow, this is one thing to see how a tree responds to 
mulching and to this, uh, and how well, we couldn't see it, it was, again, these knowing that these exudates are flowing out of tree roots, feeding the microbes, the microbes are running out and getting nutrients, bringing them back. It's this whole nutrient cycling. It was like, well, what about agriculture? There's, yeah. you know, this is just one small garden in Seattle. What about crops? What about the fact that these crops, even though they're domesticated, a lot of mm -hmm. people think, oh, these plants are just dumb. They're not. They're not. Not at all. And more capable than we, if you treat them right. The meteorologist in me, when you talked about carbon, started to say that maybe this could be at least part of a response to the amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere. How could those changes be utilized to deal with at least part of all the CO2 that's going into the atmosphere. Yeah, if we, if we could figure, if you look at the global budget for carbon, mm -hmm. there's twice as much in the world's soils as there is in the atmosphere. And that means that if we make a percentage change in the soil carbon content, mm -hmm. it's gonna be about double what the percentage drawdown wow. would be from the atmosphere. So the more carbon yeah. we put in the ground through agriculture, mm -hmm. the better for the, for the atmosphere. Now, if you look at the estimates, the global estimates of how much carbon could a, a re revised or reformed agriculture, however you want to phrase it, right. could put into the ground, uh, the estimates vary pretty widely mm -hmm. from about 5% of current fossil fuel emissions to some people argue much, much higher, closer to full offsets. I think the real number answers are somewhere. It, so yeah, as okay. with so many things, yeah. Yeah. you look somewhere in the middle. Um, so the idea of farming to put carbon back in the ground probably isn't gonna solve the climate crisis. But it could be a really yeah. good climate wedge that has all these ancillary benefits in mm -hmm. terms of enhancing soil fertility in ways that build soil health that would connect to the, 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 the micronutrient and phytochemical contents of our foods, which could help us combat chronic diseases at a population mm -hmm. level by shifting uh, the composition of our diet. There's all these uh, side benefits that could, could accrue. So the idea of, of reforming agriculture to rebuild healthy soils, that, and the foundation for that is putting more carbon in the ground because mm -hmm. it's right. that's the, the, the key piece of organic matter and it's, that's the fuel that keeps those microbes talking and spinning and moving uh, nutrients out of the soil and into plants. So it, it's one of these things where if you look at the broad sweep of human history, mm -hmm. we've made our living for almost 10,000 years degrading land. Yeah. And as who is it? Will Rogers said they ain't making them any more of it. Right. They're not right. Not making any more land. Yeah. And so we're basically at a point where we need to flip agriculture so that it enhances the fertility of land. Mm -hmm. If we're going to expect to be able to feed a growing population and sustain feeding that population over the long run. And that's where ideas about how, how could you translate these lessons into agriculture mm -hmm. become really central when you talk about, well, what's the future of humanity at a broad scale? And that's where the geologist in me likes to think over, you know, not the next few decades, but the next few centuries. Mm -hmm. And when you'd start doing that, if we continue degrading the soil, we're not gonna do so well. Fertilizers have been compared to junk food for the soil. Is that a fair statement? And if so, uh, even to a degree, why? Yeah. We know, and it's been long known, that plants need kind of three basic things to grow. Mm -hmm. This is the N, P, and K on a fertilizer right. bag, right? right? So you got your nitrogen, your phosphorus, and your potassium. And nitrogen is really the big one there. That's what, that's what grows these big buff plants and, you know, big peaches and all of this. And what we know about that is that you can grow all of this biomass, but the problem with these fertilizers is they don't contain any of these microbial metabolites. Mm -hmm. They don't, 
you know, contain these other things that plants need for their defensive and protective system. So basically, you've kind of picture it sort of this way. You've grown this, you know, big, large person, and then you send them out to a war zone with mm -hmm. nothing. No clothes, no weapons, no brain, no food. How, how is this really going to work out? Mm -hmm. So that, in essence, in a way, is what makes plants sitting ducks out in the soil is when we, we just provide fertilizers. We haven't done sort of the full meal deal <laughs> right. for plant health there. Yeah, because it turns out that a lot of the mineral micronutrients that plants need to be healthy are acquired through partnerships with soil life because mm -hmm. a plant's roots only go so far out into the soil. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's not that much zinc in the world. It's not, it's not like there's like this big pile of zinc sitting beneath a farm waiting for crops to pull up what they need. Mm -hmm. And so they've partnered with, with um, fungi in particular and some bacteria to base in a relationship where those organisms go out and selectively acquire that from all the mineral particles in the soil and bring it back and trade it to the plant roots. Mm -hmm. When you have a plant that's fed, and, and the reason that relationship works is those exudates that Dan was talking about, the plant's paying for that zinc right. with sugar. Um, so the plants are, you know, and it's not necessarily junk food for the microbes because they, they, they thrive on the sugar. Yeah. Or, um, when you have plants that are grown in a very, very nitrogen rich environment, mm -hmm. they get lazy they cut down on their exudate production. And that means that they're not feeding the microbes that are out there getting them all those mineral micronutrients, producing those microbial metabolites, and providing things that are central to plant health. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the things that you sort of see in the 20th century is that not long after the adoption of widespread synthetic nitrogen fertilization, and, and the problem with it isn't that it's nitrogen. Nitrogen's just an element, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is it's applied in large amounts in a soluble form. And that means that it's like feeding the plants with a fire hose. Um, and they didn't evolve with a fire hose of nitrogen. No. <laughs> so they evolved with, the, with Anne's drip filter that she was talking right. about earlier. Right. And so when you change that and you give them a fire hose of nitrogen, they turn off the drip filter because they don't need to use that. Yeah. They're, they're growing. They're, ha they're, they're growing. They're happy. I think where it, what it sort of comes down to is that we have erroneously decided in, in agriculture as a whole that somehow mm -hmm. growth is the same as health. So as long as the uh. plant is growing, the plant is healthy. But we know that plant health is a completely different kind of a thing than just growing a bunch of biomass. Mm -hmm. Because once you've grown all that biomass fueled by nitrogen fertilizer, the plant's defensive and protective systems have to figure out, oh, how do I protect this? And so losing microbial partners means mm -hmm. you're kind of losing your defensive strategy. And this is where then, oh, this, this, the thousands of pesticides out there come into play because we're trying, right. farmers right. are trying to compensate for lost biology with pesticides. Mm -hmm. we're, we're living through an insect apocalypse. There's estimates that we've lost about half the insects on Earth so far. Mm. Now. You know, if you're just thinking about mosquitoes, be like, great! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is it's not just mosquitoes. Yeah. And mosquitoes probably serve their purposes as well, although I'm not aware of them. <laughs> they're, they're bird food. Okay, they're bird food. And that's the best use for a mosquito. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the, um, uh, as a fundamental ecosystem change on the planet, mm -hmm. the, the use of pesticides on, you know, in a broad scale, in broad spectrum pesticides, uh, has been 
very impactful in ways that we're going to be paying for for some time in terms of the ecological damage uh, that's produced. Um, but when you look, and so one question is how much of that do we actually need in agriculture going forward? And one of the things we explore in the book and we explore with interviews with people is looking at um, whether or not you can greatly reduce the need for pesticides by building healthy soils back. Mm -hmm. So in the same, it's kind of the inverse of when we went for, for, uh, to using lots of nitrogen fertilizer, global use of pesticides went through the roof afterwards. Well, we might be able to turn that back around by adopting more regenerative farming practices that don't rely as much on the, the readily absorbed synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, mm -hmm. the, the, the soluble stuff, um, and instead rebuild soil health we could probably cut back on pesticides as well. There's lots of arguments about the, the, the human health effects of pesticides in food. Mm -hmm. you know, and my sort of standard response is, how much pesticide do you want in your food? I think none would none. be perfect, right. yeah. as little as possible. One of the things, I was just recently in the Midwest visiting families, and uh, our family grew up in Wisconsin, lots of farm fields there. You'd tend to look at farm fields, and you'd see the nice plowed fields, and you'd say, oh, that looks like really nice soil. but in looking at some of the examples you cited, that may have been uh, moving down the wrong path in terms of, I don't know if that applies directly to regenerative agriculture or some of the practices there, but how are you seeing different methods actually could produce a much better result? So the, combi the combination of practices sort of at the root of what we call modern farming mm -hmm. are uh, lots of intensive mechanized tillage, so lots of plowing, mm -hmm. uh, lots of reliance on agrochemicals, nit synthetic nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides to sort of grow and maintain our crops, and then functional monocultures, just growing one crop or maybe a two crop rotation like mm -hmm. corn and soybeans, which is you know, right. virtually a monoculture, though not quite. Um, and you look at those three practices together, and what do they do? They disrupt the soil life. They're very disruptive of, of the soil microbiome that Anna's talking about, mm -hmm. and all those connections between what's happening in the soil and what's getting into our crops. Now, so how would you undo that or reverse that? Well, you would think differently about each of those things. So the, the basic recipe that, um, that we uh, recognized, I uh, didn't come up with it, uh, but, but recognized um, in the book that we wrote after uh, the hidden half of nature, uh, which is called Growing a Revolution. I interviewed farmers around the world who had done to their farms what mm -hmm. Anne had done to our yard in terms of restoring the health and fertility of their land, turning you know, one or two percent organic, so organic matter soil into three, four, five, or higher up to like 10 percent on some of the farms we visited. Um, you know, what'd they do? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the recipe that applied across the board from large mechanized farms in the U.S. to small subsistence farms in Africa boiled down to three things. Um, basically not disturbing the soil or minimal chemical and physical disturbance of the soil, mm -hmm. um, keeping the ground covered with cover crops, so not leaving that, that sort of the bare black fields that look so right. clean and yeah. nice. Well, they're not. <laughs> um, and then also growing a diversity of crops, not mm -hmm. growing the same thing in the same field over and over, because that's an invitation for the next generation of pests to be born in a grocery store. Right? Yeah. If you're a corn pest and you're, the farmer grows corn in the same field again, Whatever pests got in there last year, their kids are going to have a great time next yeah. year. So you look at those three things of minimal disturbance, uh, organic matter inputs from the cover crops, so putting carbon back in the ground that way, um, and growing diversity. That's essentially the opposite recipe from what we've landed on in conventional agriculture, but that's the soil building recipe. Mm -hmm. And a number of the farmers that we uh, interviewed 
uh, found that after they restored fertility to their land, their yields were comparable to their conventional neighbors, but they were using less than half of the diesel, less than half of the fertilizer and pesticides. Some of them had completely weaned themselves off of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So there's a real path forward that you can sort of lump that together under a regenerative label and how Ann and I view the term regenerative is farming practices that build the health and fertility of the land as a consequence of farming. We can call that regenerative. Now there's lots of different ways to get there, mm -hmm. but those three principles of minimal disturbance, cover crops, and diversity, that's kind of the necessary foundation for doing it because that's what it takes to support soil life. Give them a place to live, give them food, and give them you know, a, a community to collaborate with to form ecological um, um, communities and relationships with. And it sounds from what I'm hearing that also farmers would be uh, having the opportunity to spend far less on pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and therefore it would be, they could make more money Right. Farming. That's right. what turned me into an optimist on this. Well, and farmers really like not spending money on inputs if they don't have to. Yeah. You look at some of these large farms out in the Midwest and you look at uh, people, you know, shared how much they're spending and it was a remarkable amount of mm -hmm. money. That stuff's not cheap. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And farmers have been kind of caught in a squeeze play in the middle of yeah. agricultural policies that have encouraged them to grow a limited number of crops. There are mm -hmm. crop subsidies. So they grow a lot of corn and soybeans. What does yeah. that mean? They don't get much for it, right? They, they've driven their, the price that they get for their harvest down by harvesting so much. Yeah. And, you know, okay, we, maybe we want that much food. Maybe we'd want a little different mix of what's in the game. But the problem is that if their input costs have gone up, their fertilizer costs have gone up, diesel prices have gone up, uh, patented seed prices have gone up. Uh, so if their costs are going up, but the amount that they can get paid for their harvest is depressed through policy, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're squeezed in the middle. So that economic connection of basically more profitable farming lining up with more ecological farming, mm -hmm. that's what basically got us really excited about, well, what is the future of this? You know, how can it scale up? Is it viable? How does it work? And that was all behind a lot of the interviews we did for both for What Your Food Ate, but also for Growing a Revolution. And there seems to be some very real effects there and some very real cause for optimism. And perhaps acting as a break on food price increases too, making it more affordable, good right. food. Right, Yeah, exactly. I mean, right. if you look today at sort of organic food and regenerative foods, mm -hmm. you'll often pay a premium for it. Right. Why? Because there's the supply doesn't, isn't adequate to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. They can sell it for more. If everybody was doing regenerative practices, if, if you know, I'd say 30 years from now, uh, the style of regenerative farming that we're talking about became the new conventional farming, which mm -hmm. we would love to see, right. then it's gonna basically do exactly what you have your finger on, which would be to result in keeping prices down for what we think of as better food today. Mm -hmm. And you've seen the same basic issues in terms of the quality of uh, the food from meat. We're still in a country that gets a lot of its nutrition from meat. And you've seen some of the same things in terms of, do you let, uh, do you uh, basically force feed livestock or do you let them graze? Right, right. For the countries that eat a lot of meat compared mm -hmm. to the countries that hardly eat any meat, it would be sort of like, let's bring down high, high meat consumption in right. some of these more affluent countries. And because meat is a really nutrient dense food, meat and dairy, let's bring it up in these other countries. So some of us eat less and some of us get to eat more. And that fits well with, let's 
not rely on keeping animals in these concentrated right. feeding operations and, and deciding what it is they want to eat. Because animals, just like plants, they're not stupid. I mean, long before farmers ever came around, think about all of these um, herbivores out in the Serengeti, Yeah. right? Who's telling eland and antelope and musk ox, you know, what to eat? They have, we go into this in the book, there's this just this concept called body wisdom. And with herbivores, because all they eat is plants, I really think they're more like chemists than anything else. Interesting. They eat about three to five species, form the bulk of their nutrition, like say over um, a couple of days, but they're sampling far more, something like, you know, around 40 or mm -hmm. more species. So they're like, is this, What's in this plant? Is this going to give me nutrition? Oh, I've, those phytochemicals are a little making me a little nauseous. Going to back off of the tannins. I'm going to move more toward this. So these animals are not stupid at all. They've long, long been self-medicating and figuring out how to get a balanced diet. And we have that too. We have body wisdom. It's just hard to exercise that as you're walking through, say, a grocery store. Uh, and what if you live in a place where you don't have the best food choices in your That's grocery right. store or a grocery store is too far away, your body wisdom can't work properly. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where all that comes into well, it. A big, big part of that is that the, the um, food processing industry with flavoring in terms, has yes. sort of broken the link that we were talking about, I think last time, about the links between flavor and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So that if, if the flavor doesn't actually reflect what's in the product, it just reflects some flavoring, then your body's getting the wrong signals in terms of, oh, I'm getting all this nutrition, but you're not getting it. So your tongue right. is going, oh, this is great, but your body is going, no, 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 I need more food because that's not, that's not giving us what we yeah. need. This is where eating one chip leads to eating 99 more <laughs> chips because your body wisdom is waiting. There's like kind of half the, the nutrient profile there. And so your body wisdom is saying, oh, let's see, I got about 5% of the protein I need, eat, eat more of that. Okay, yeah. we're up to 10% of the protein I'm looking for and then then the whole bag of chips is but gone. But you're getting all this other stuff. Oh, you're getting yeah. salt, yeah. sugar galore. Oh yeah, yeah. plenty yeah. of that. There's so much more that we could talk about and I wish we had more time, but a rich and very well-written book, uh, as a science journalist myself, the storytelling is great in that. Oh, thank you. So again, What Your Food Ate and a series of several different books that you've written on this topic. And uh, David and Ann, thank you so much for joining us on Challenge. Yeah, Jeff, thank, thank you, you. Jeff. It's been fun. And thank you for joining us on Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll tune in again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of past understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.